invite you, if you have a copy of God's Word, they're available to you, to join me in the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter, 2nd chapter. We'll actually begin reading. We're only going to focus on two of these verses, but I think it's helpful if we back up and begin reading at verse 4. Now, as you're finding that place and we get ready to read, uh, just wanted to take a moment. I think many of you are already aware, but if not, our dear sister in Christ, Maxine Baker, passed away this last week. Her funeral service is, will be this Tuesday here at Boulevard. Visitation will be at 4. For the time with the family, they'll have some photos and things out here, and then the service at 4.30. We're also providing a meal for them, and if you're inclined to help with that, would have an opportunity to do a side dish or something, uh, come over, talk to Gordon and Brenda Ruggles. Wave at them, folks, so they know where you are. Some of these folks are young and don't know some of us. So uh, anyway, if you could help with that, that would be deeply appreciated. First Peter, second chapter, begin reading at verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now, focus on these next two verses. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is indeed the word of our God. Let's pray. Father, grant to us now, we ask by your spirit that you work in us in such a way that the word is effectual and powerful. Oh, Lord, may we tremble as we hear from you. May we tremble at the thought of our own hard-heartedness keeping us from this. May we tremble at the reality of the grace that has condescended to speak a word of salvation to us. Oh, Lord, for your great name's sake, help us now, we pray in Christ's name. Now, you see, we have considered who we are. Now we begin to consider what we do. I say again, if you get these things out of order, it never works out well. 
unless you begin with the indicative, the declarations of what has been done for you and what is true of you, whether you fully grasp it or not, unless you lay hold of that, the indicatives descend into one of two disasters. Arrogance, because you think you're doing something for the Lord, and that's not healthy. Or despair, because you can never do enough. Before we launch into the imperative, these verses 11 and 12, let me point something out to you. How does he begin that 11th verse? Beloved. Now, we, we get a little anxiety, I think, talking like that. That makes us a little nervous. Beloved. Sounds like something that ought to be on a Valentine's card, and maybe a very sappy one at that, right, with extraordinarily beautiful calligraphy. Beloved. The word that's used there is the same word that's used for the love of God elsewhere. Version of agape, agapos. It's a title reserved for those who have been given and recognized the love of God. Now, I think part of it is Simon Peter saying to them, I love you guys. Now, remember, I don't, I don't think that, my, that Simon Peter has necessarily seen these people. I know he's not seen all of them. He's writing to a group of churches with which he is familiar, but with which he has not necessarily been personally engaged. And he's saying, I love you guys. Listen to me, beloved, hear me. But more than that, he's reminding us of what he just said. Beloved, chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, a people for his own possession. Once you weren't a people, now you are a people. Once you'd not received mercy, now you have received mercy. You are loved, Christian. You know, that's really a good thing. He loves you. And he loved you when you were not lovable. You see, we, we don't celebrate that kind of thing at Valentine's Day. I, I'm just going to tell you up front, children, if you're going to start the romantic time together with, you know what, you weren't lovable, but I loved you anyway, this is not working out well. I, I don't have enough room in my counseling schedule to fix that. That kind of love, the assumption is it is a mutual thing, right? There is a, an element of being on par with one another. This is a completely different creature, a completely different perspective. Not only did we not love him, we loathed him, we hated him, we ran from him. He loved us christian if you ever lose sight of the love of god you will never ever really grasp what it means to live godly in christ jesus this is a beginning point never lose sight of this 
I mean, think of it this way, as one brother put it. How can Gentiles gain this priestly privilege? The book of Leviticus can't be amended to admit uncircumcised Gentiles into God's court. That's what Paul's enemies accused him of doing, bringing Gentiles into the sanctuary of the Lord. They tried to tear him limb from limb for that, and they were right in thinking the law could not be altered. Their mistake was in refusing to see that it had been fulfilled. It could not be altered. It had been fulfilled. And now to a group of Gentiles in what we would today consider modern-day Turkey, here in this first century, he says to them, they have a glorious identity, and that is the basis for how they are to live. He's now going to address, now don't miss this phrase earlier, where he says in the midst of that ninth verse, that people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And now at verse 11, he begins to take on what does that look like to proclaim his excellencies. The glorious identity is the basis for how you live. But living, we still live as, what does he say, sojourners and strangers or aliens. So how, how, how can you be an alien without being alienating? How is it that you can be a stranger without being too strange. How we go about living as sojourners in this world among those who are residents of this world. My friend, what, what Peter's pointing out here is that we are far too casual about eternal life. Far too casual when it comes to our own eternal souls and the souls of others. As rescued people, Peter calls us here to make war for our holiness and to bear witness for the sake of other people's souls. First, the inward battle. Make war. Now, why do I say that? Well, because Peter says that. I urge you as sojourners and exiles, abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Herein is the inner battle. The battle for the soul the first and most important battle. You see, our world doesn't give serious attention to this. There's no thought of this. There's no column in a newspaper. There's no Facebook page for this. There's nothing that gives you any indication that people care about their souls. The world we live in gives no counsel on how to fight for the eternal life of the soul. But Scripture will tell us there are two battles for the soul. The first battle is for entrance into the kingdom. Jesus said, what's it profit a man if he gain the whole world, forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Now, this, in essence, is impetus as we consider the project of mission, of going forth and taking the gospel to people. We are doing battle for the souls. And we are praying for the Lord to awaken them to the reality that they actually have a soul and it is in danger. Now, when you have people react poorly to your gospel presentation, it ought not surprise you you have suddenly alerted them something about which they don't want to be alerted. 
They don't want this pointed out. It's uncomfortable. You're assaulting the one on the throne, them, as you bring the battle for man's soul. There is a battle for entrance. But you see, the Christian, even after he's entered, has an ongoing battle for his own soul. Here's where the battle for character is won or lost. It is this internal battle. Peter is unafraid to use the analogy here of warfare. Paul will use similar analogies when he talks about spiritual warfare in Ephesians, the sixth chapter. That's why the Scripture will talk about working out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. The pursuit of holiness is primarily, in the first place, an inward pursuit. It begins with recognizing that I still in my flesh carry passions that war against my soul. Now, please, don't for a moment think that the Bible is opposed to all things fun and pleasurable and wonderful. It is not. That's a misreading of the text entirely. The Lord is glad for you to enjoy the pleasures of this world as long as you enjoy them in the manner in which He granted them to us in the beginning. Our problem is our appetites get all askew. <laughs> and you only have to look at some of us to figure that out. Our passions can run away with us. And they're not little things to be coddled. I, I like this imagery. Um, we, we far too often don't recognize that danger within ourselves. And we want to make peace with these passions. John Piper put it this way, when you see yourself as an alien in exile with your citizenship in heaven and God is your only sovereign, you stop drifting with the current of the day. You ponder what is good for the soul and what honors God in everything. Food, cars, videos, bathing suits, birth control, driving speeds, bedtimes, financial savings, education for your children, unreached peoples, famine, refugee camps, sports, death, and everything else. Aliens get their cue from God and not from the world. That's why we live in a sense, aliens, sojourners in the world, because the world is all going one direction, and the Lord calls us not only not to go in that direction, not only just to stand there and let the world go by, but to actually turn around and move the other direction. And that begins with you and I making war internally for our own souls. Now, friend, I say that to you not because I think a Christian can be lost. But oh my word, if the word of God, if the gospel has come into us and changed us, we will do battle. We see things in us and we just go, oh no, Lord, we got to do something about this. <laughs> I need to kill this thing before it kills me. We do battle inwardly. 
One brother said the, the enemy here is the passions of the flesh. In other words, there are enemies outside of us. The devil, the world, and we need to be aware of them. But you must be particularly alert to the enemy within. What's going on inwardly that needs a battle? How do I wage war for my own soul? Well, folks, this is fairly simple, and you know the old man. I'm not too complicated when it comes to these things. I think far too often we make this more complex than it has to be. But first of all, I need to recognize the Spirit of God dwells within me. If I'm a Christian, I am not alone. I'm never alone. The Spirit of God is always within me. And the Spirit of God, in working in my soul, does so with the Word of God to help me understand the changes that need to take place within me. This becomes transformational. Not just my works, not just me battling, but he's at work within me. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who does what? Works in you to do two things, to will and to do. Well, how do I know if God's doing that? Because he promised to do that. So I take action believing, trusting he's taking action. The reading, pondering, meditating on in obedience to the Scripture, prayer to God the Father, trusting in the work of the Spirit, considering the price of my redemption, denying the thoughts and urges which I know to be wrong, cautions about uncritical intake, changing my meditations, my thought processes, all of that is making war internally against that evil that is still within me. Now, let me give you a little encouragement, Christian. You ready? You can do this the rest of your life. How's that encouraging? <laughs> you don't arrive. You never stop. See, this is what I think happens. Sometimes we've done this a long time, we've battled a long time, we've fought a long time, and it feels like we're not getting anywhere, and we wonder if it's doing us any good. Yes, it's doing you good. There's not an expiration date on the battle till the Lord calls you home or Jesus comes back. That's when the battle ends. Up to that point, you fight. And the ground may shift. And the passions may differ. But they're still there. We may fight with things that are more physical when we are younger. Lusts and such things, such physical appetites. And we may fight with other passions and struggles when we're older because then maybe the passions of the flesh aren't as strong in the sense of physical things but grumpiness harshness self-centeredness you know i pray the lord I, I joke about becoming a curmudgeon that i've been a curmudgeon in training for some time now if you don't know what a curmudgeon is get a dictionary or look it up online google it um, but there's also a part of me that weeps at the thought of becoming a cranky old person. God have mercy. One should fight that passion. We do battle with this the entirety of our lives. Now, you wage war for your soul inwardly, but because you care about those around you and the glory of God, you not only deal with inward behavior in terms of warfare, you deal with outward behavior in terms of witness. Verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good works or your good deeds and glorify God on the day 
a visitation. You've got to watch your soul because that then determines how you live. Remember, Jesus condemned the Pharisees who looked good on the outside, but on the inside, he said, you're filled with dead men's bones. You're unclean internally. Then you live as aliens and strangers. Keep in mind, they're not going to get it. You'll experience misunderstanding, ridicule, hatred from pagans. Listen to this. Given the bias of unbelievers against God, even the good Christian, the good that Christians do will be spoken of as evil. That certainly happened. The Roman historian Tacitus remarks that Christians were, quote, loathed because of their abominations, end quote. Another author, Suetonius, approved of Nero's persecution of Christians whom he referred to, quote, as a class of people animated by a novel and mischievous superstition, end quote. Now, what in the world did these Christians do? Well, they were revolutionaries, for one thing. They wouldn't salute the genius of the emperor. They wouldn't call the emperor a god. That was revolutionary. It's a bunch of rebels. You've got to do with it. They're not patriotic. Besides that, they're cannibals. They eat somebody's flesh and drink his blood. They're also immoral. They love each other. They greet one another with a holy kiss. They all act like they're part of the same family. They're a bunch of immoral people. In fact, we kind of suspect they're atheists because they don't have any images of their God. And then of all the stupid things, they think a guy that was executed under Roman law for being a rebel and a revolutionary on a cross, he's their leader, and they say he's not dead anymore. Ain't nobody undone dead when a Roman puts you to death. <laughs> Except he did. Your response to this is you continue to do good works. And remind yourself, Christian, good works are not looking down your nose at the way pagans live and act. Please hear what I'm saying. I'm not saying we shouldn't be, in a sense, stunned at the way unbelievers behave. But there also ought to be a part of us that is kind of like, they're unbelievers. Of course they live this way. In some ways, I'm shocked they're not worse. A few years ago, I ran across an article in On Mission magazine, published, I believe, by our International Mission Board. It had testimonies of believers and their interactions with unbelievers, and also comments from unbelievers. And I'm going to mingle this in as we think about this. Carolyn Curtis, in an article, the article was entitled, Why I Sleep In on Sundays. It was about surveying why unbelievers live the way they do. Now, Carolyn was a Christian, and she tells about a first-hand witnessing experience she had on a flight to Indonesia in the 70s. She was going to an island. She and her friend were invited by the captain, another American, as they're on the flight for a tour of the cockpit. And he showed off the instrument panel and entertained us by suddenly banking the plane so we could get a good view of Borneo. <laughs> the crew laughed as we lurched around the tiny cabin. A couple of foul words stunned the air. And I let it be known that such language offended me as I was a Christian. 
We had more fun in the cockpit. The pilot teased Lori about the scare he'd given us, and I put in another good word for Jesus. That went well. I congratulated myself as we made our way back to our seats. We landed in Jakarta, a refueling stop. During the nearly two-hour layover, Carolyn noticed the captain was avoiding her. When she finally asked him why he was glaring at her, he let me have it, full throttle. Now, he's not a Christian. Turns out I'd broken just about every rule of effectively presenting myself as a Christian. I'd been smug about my faith, forced my beliefs on the cockpit crew, and acted like I had it all together when, in fact, the air show had scared the wits out of me, too. In short, my so-called testimony for the Lord was totally out of context, inappropriate, and therefore not the least bit credible. I'd probably done more harm than good, at least according to the pilot, who halfway around the world from our home had nothing to lose from giving me a piece of his mind. <laughs> Another person interviewed Janet. That time a 36-year-old stay-at-home mother of three. If you take a hard look at the way some Christians act, it's hard to believe they have a corner on morality. Two wives on my cul-de-sac call themselves Christians and talk about their Bible study. They invited me to come on Thursday mornings. They even offer coffee in Danish. And the kids can play in the yard while the ladies talk in the family room. I figure if they talk about what's in the Bible, that's fine. Trouble is, I've never been able to bring myself to drop by because I don't have stomach for their kind of talk. I hear so much gossip and mean-spirited conversation come out of their mouths at community association meetings. I can't imagine how they must behave at these Bible studies. I guess they don't know people notice stuff like that. Or Sally, a dental hygienist with one daughter from Montana. People who talk to me about God emphasize what they've done with God's help rather than what God has done without their help. I feel like their God talk is a sneaky way to brag on themselves while sounding humble. Wow, it got quiet in here. Anybody squirming besides me? Now, folks, please understand, I'm sure there's more to these stories. I'm, I'm certain of it. But you see, living our good works is doing what's right and good in the sight of God. And that means things like honest labor, a gracious attitude, facing hardship with grace and faith, works of service, carefulness of speech, not a gossip, not a slanderer, not a complainer, not a whiner, very careful of judgmentalism. These works are done. Now, what's the purpose? Notice what he says. Once, as he'd said before, you're not a people, now you are. Once you'd not received mercy, now you have. This is proclaiming the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Keep your conduct, verse 12, among the Gentiles honorable, so when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Let me clarify some things. The purpose of your good works is so these may one day glorify God, these who don't believe. How does that play? It says on the day of visitation. 
The day of visitation is not a scheduled calendar event in the church's life that once a week or once a month, whatever, we go visit people. Day of visitation is about the Lord's coming. It's about the final day. It's about the judgment. And this day of visitation for those people is going to result in one of two things. It is their salvation or it is their judgment. Here's what I'm trying to say to you. When you live your life before unbelievers, they're watching. You may live it poorly, and they see and hold you and the message in contempt. You may live it well, and they see and hold you and the message in contempt. Now, Doug, you're undoing all you did. No. Whether or not they believe, let them never have a quasi-excuse that our lives in some way kept them from believing the gospel because we were hypocritical. The Lord may well save them, and you living your life may be a part of that witness of the Lord that brings them to saving faith. And it may not. What I'm trying to arm you against is this, my brothers and sisters. Live your life righteously and godly doesn't mean lost people will love you. <laughs> they may hate you even more. But how you live your life is so they will glorify God on the day of visitation. What does that mean? Well, it means for some of them, they'll come to saving faith. And the Lord will know, because He knows all things, as He used you in some sense to lead them to that. And that's a glorious thing. But you see, my friends, they're going to glorify God on the day of visitation either way. The longer I live, the more frightening this is as I ponder it, the more sobering. <laughs> Mere beings of clay, rear up on the hind legs and curse God and say, there's not enough evidence you're real, there's not enough to convince me, and all this stuff is a fake and a phony and I will not serve you, and I defy you to do anything about it. And my friends, you're going to stand before God. The God who holds your very life in His hands. The God who has determined when you live and when you die. And these words... You see, whether they believe or whether they don't, this is certainty. Therefore God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. You're going to bow, friend, and you're going to confess. And you either bow and confess now 
to your everlasting salvation or you will bow and confess in the day of visitation to your everlasting destruction. But you will do this. And Christian, here's the reality. You and I must never give them reason to question what we believe. Now, please, I'm not saying you've got to do this perfectly. If we've got to do it perfectly, we're all doomed. Right? We're all in trouble. But there ought to be a glorious consistency between what we claim and how we live. That doesn't happen, though, if you don't initially make war against the passions that are still within you. And when you make war on those passions, then it affects how you live outwardly. And whether they see it and it moves them to conviction and they hear the gospel and are saved, or whether they see it and they're angry and frustrated and they loathe you, it doesn't matter. They've been given the right testimony of who it is and what we are and what this gospel's about. So here's my question. Quite simply this, are you making warfare against the sinful desires within you that are making war on you? Christian, remember who you are. You have a new identity that changes everything. Here's how sojourners and strangers live. Christian, do battle for your soul. But also remember, Christian, when it comes to the world around you, those unbelievers who see you, they're not the enemy. That's not the battle. For them, they should see grace and kindness, the fruit of the Spirit. That does not mean they will love you. That doesn't mean they will necessarily believe. It does mean we should give them no cause for offense. Hear me. They should have no cause for offense beyond the offense already built into the gospel message. Wow. That's a little uncomfortable, isn't it? Good. Now, Christian, I don't want you to go out of here depressed and hopeless. Because the prior things are still true if you're his, right? Just because you've messed up doesn't mean you aren't chosen. And royal and priesthood and holy and his possession. In fact, the reality that you're bothered by tells me those things are true. But oh, shall we not now commit ourselves to living in such a way we declare, we proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. May the Lord grant that. Let's pray. Father, there are some here today that are outside of Christ. And my prayer, Lord, our prayer, is that they have heard this. They have been convicted of their sin. And even now, they're crying out for the Lord Jesus Christ to be their Savior. 
And Lord, further we pray, if they've not reached that point, that they're under conviction and struggling and have questions, I pray they'd come find me, they'd find some member of this church and talk and ask questions for the good of their eternal soul. Lord, further we pray that you would help us as believers to live in such a way that we demonstrate quite clearly that we are yours. Help us, Father, to do battle with that which wages war against us, the desires that are still within us, that are wrong and out of sorts, idolatrous and dangerous. And, oh, Father, at the same time, may we live lives that are above reproach so that if accused of doing evil, the final judgment will show that was not true. Rather, it was the mistaken vision of those outside of you who looked at our lives with jaundice, selfishness. Oh, Father, may we give glory to you in all that we do. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand now. Exceeds the heavens reach your truth, a fount of perfect wisdom, my highest good and my unending Trials are abounding. 
gracious Savior of my ruined life, my gift and cross laid on your shoulders, and in my place you suffered, bled, and 